Thank you, everyone, for tuning into the Michiana Real Estate Podcast. This is actually the premiere episode of the podcast. I created this thing for all of us to better understand our own housing market here in Michiana. There's plenty of real estate pods out there, but this is the only one devoted to Michiana, at least that I'm aware of. Now, I'm no expert, so I plan on talking to local experts in everything from finance to listings to inspections to credit, anything involved with residential or commercial real estate. As for me, my name is Stephen DeJulius, and I have lived in the Michiana area for about six years now. My wife and kids and I have really come to love it here, and, and for us, it's home. I'm currently employed by a large commercial property owner in the area, and I also hold an Indiana broker's license. I also have a history podcast called Written in Blood. If you're interested in history, you can go look that up. This podcast is my little way of giving back to the community, which I call home. Today, we dive into one of the most important aspects of buying a home, mortgage lending. For this, I reached out to mortgage consultant Jonathan McKinnis, who has bravely accepted the role of being my first guest. Together, we dive into all things needed for getting approved for the home you want, as well as what has changed with the COVID reality that we all now live in. And so, without further delay, here's Jonathan McKinnis. So Jonathan McKinnis, thanks for coming on the uh, Michiana Real Estate Podcast. I really appreciate you actually being the guinea pig for the launch episode here. <laughs> You're a brave soul for doing that. <laughs> I'm honored. I'm honored to be uh, the first one on and and uh, would, you know, this is uh, a big part of my my life, you know, when it comes to real estate and the mortgage business, so I'm happy to share any of the uh, insight that I might be able to help you with. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. So uh, one of the points of the podcast is to um, sort of demystify the the real estate markets for um, primarily the the people living in Michiana and South Bend, Elkhart, and even over the border in Niles. Um, and the th- what I what I hope to do here is make it entirely focused on our local market because there's a lot of real estate podcasts out there that are nationally oriented that you know, deal with all, you know, the, the big economies in the world. And, and we're just, we're such a different economy, you know, we're not really a major city, but we feed off of a lot of what happens in, in Chicago um, and even Indianapolis. And so I just think we're, we're an entirely different market that when we're going to have a discussion about the real estate market here, we've got to be talking about the actual things on the ground here. So Mm -hmm. um, that's what I hope to, to do with this podcast. So uh, before we get started, maybe uh, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, how you got into the business that you're in. Absolutely. Yeah. So I uh, started in in 2006. I got into the uh, mortgage industry, and um, I was actually in college. I was finishing up my college uh, coursework at Indiana University, South Bend, so I stayed in South Bend, and uh, was just looking for a career in in, in something. I was actually taking business management classes, had no idea what I was wanting to do, but I um, had an opportunity to get into this industry because, you know, you have family in the industry, you know, somebody who knows somebody and they give you an opportunity. And so I uh, received an, an opportunity to start from the ground up. Um, didn't like it. I was about, about six months into the business and I thought that it was not for me, but then I started uh, seeing doors open up and more opportunities arise. And I started to get my feet under me and realize that I could uh, serve the community well and serve families. And I, I do understand the business. And, and from 2006 on, I've, I've uh, continued to serve in the uh, Michiana area. So Indiana, Michigan, 
And um, I'm now the branch manager at Hallmark Home Mortgage. I've uh, been a branch manager for a few years now, and uh, we're doing doing fairly well. You know, I've, I've uh, made a career out of it, and, and I'm, I feel pretty blessed to be able to serve the community and and, uh, and just do a hopefully, uh, from my point of view, and from uh, hopefully the uh, other people's point of view, that I'm serving a, a good job. So. And you're also a podcaster. <laughs> yeah, you know, I started picking that up. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I, to tell you the truth, I've, I've fallen short on that here over the course of the last few months, simply because of COVID-19 and most of my podcasts, I was actually meeting people, uh, in office. And, uh, I like this, you've got it set up where we can do it remotely and I need to start doing that more. But yeah, I started a podcast called uh, purpose and performance. You can go to see some old recordings or listen to old recordings. And it's really just, uh, me talking to people about success, life, business, uh, just ways of continuing to excel and be effective in your career or in, or in life in general. So that's not really mortgage related uh, or real estate related per se, but just uh, more of a universal topic. Well, you know, in the one of the things that I love about real estate is that it's so personal. It's such a personal industry. Um, I, and I don't think it matters what side you're on whether you're um, you're on the realtor side or if you're on the finance side or gosh, even on the construction or um, inspection side, you're, you're dealing with people who this is the biggest purchase they're ever going to make. And it's probably the most personal purchase that they're ever going to make. So um, there's so much more to this industry than, than just the numbers and the figures um, and the fancy titles. It's, I, I like the idea of, of your podcast purpose and performance um, and, and even just to tie it into real estate because it, it, it's just such a, it's such a personal nature. Um, yes. in fact, your last episode with Karima Fowler, uh, was, was awesome. I really enjoyed that episode. Yeah. That was uh, awesome to get her on and yeah. Yeah, she was great. So, um, to get started into, I want to primarily, um, stick to your wheelhouse here in, in the finance and, and lending aspect. Um, one of the biggest questions for me before I got into real estate, um, or one of the hardest things I had I had trouble figuring out was the interest rates. And it, it's probably the most important thing to understand. I think it's the most important thing to understand when you're when you're going for a mortgage. When when you need a loan, you have to understand the interest rate. Um, and I know early on in my uh, credit life, I. I didn't understand interest rates and I would see it as just a number on a paper and I would just sign on the dotted line because somebody was actually willing to give me a loan. So if you could for a moment, uh, sort of demystify the interest rate for everybody listening. Yeah. The first thing that people need to know is what creates the interest rates or where do interest rates, your long-term mortgage rates derive from. And uh, the first thing to be mindful of is that they are not tied to the federal funds rate directly. And so sometimes when people listen to the news or they watch the news and they hear that the Fed cut interest rates, then they all of a sudden assume that their mortgage rates are also being cut. So when the Fed and the Federal Reserve meets and they change any monetary policy or anything, yes, there could be little changes that happen within your long-term interest rates and other areas of the economy, because anytime they even have a statement that comes out or in their meeting, there's always speculation and changes within, within the markets. However, when the Federal Reserve meets and they cut the federal funds rate, what that is, is the rate that 
banks charge each other overnight, so overnight lending to each other. So it's actually impacting more of your short-term interest rates, not your long-term rates. So it could be your credit card rates, your home equity lines of credit. It could be your interest uh, yields on your checking accounts and savings mm -hmm. accounts, things like that. Um, but when the Fed cuts their rate, uh, it's a lot of people, they assume that it's the long-term rate. So what impacts your long-term rates? It's mainly going to be the mortgage-backed securities market. And so just to give you a really basic understanding on, for the most part, investor dollars are going into the stock market or they're going into the bond market. Generally speaking, there's an inverse relationship between stocks and bonds. I mean, sometimes it's not that way, but if if there's heavy investing in stocks on any given day, then sometimes investors pull from the bond market, the mortgage-backed securities market in daily trading. And when that happens, when the bond market has less trading happening, then you'll find that the with the yields changing, then interest rates can actually go up slightly that day. When um, the bond market has more investor dollars going into the bond market, then many times interest rates can go down. There's that inverse relationship. So higher investing in bonds, then lower interest rates on your long-term mortgage-backed securities. So it just depends on what that day holds. But that's what we look at. We're going to look at that. And then also a lender will look at what's called the 10-year treasury, the T-bill. And so that's another indicator of what's happening in the mortgage world. And then the final thing we're going to look at, uh, we're looking at more than just these three things, but the final thing that's a big indicator of what's going to happen with rates is, is inflation. If you ever hear the term inflation and there's more inflationary pressure in, uh, in our economy, you're going to find interest rates will go up. That's the arch enemy of interest rates is inflation. And so uh, we've seen very tame inflation over the course of the last few years. And so we haven't seen major changes or, or spikes in rates due to inflation. So that hasn't been a major concern. But um, those are the things that we're looking at. Now, when it comes to banks, credit unions, brokers, uh, bankers, and the interest rates they offer, for the most part, we're all getting our money from the same pile. We're all getting it from the secondary market for the most part. And so uh, you should see most lenders have similar rates. There could be some changes here or there depending on their maybe their risk uh, appetite and the types of loans that they offer and things like that. But uh, you'll find that interest rates are all very similar because all lenders are basing their their uh, their interest rate offer off of a very similar um, you know metric. You know, so so that's hopefully that helps a little bit. I know that gets into a little bit of the weeds, but um, I think that would help people at least understand what makes the interest rates get where they are. And um, and right now, what we're seeing is more uncertainty in the markets. We're seeing interest rates stay low for a while. The federal government has basically made it known that uh, they're going to try to keep rates low for a period of time. And, and the prediction is through 2021, now it's a prediction, so it's not exact, but a prediction is that rates are going to stay fairly low uh, through 2021 simply because there's still a lot of uncertainty in the markets. Uh, and when there's uncertainty, what happens is, is a lot of times interest rates are a beneficiary of the uncertainty in the markets. No, I, I think that's um, a really good explanation. And one of the things that that highlights is that you, when you come to the table to get a mortgage, when a person comes to the table to get a mortgage, they're, like you said, uh, and I know I'm, I'm guilty of the same thing. I'm looking at the news and it's like, oh, wow, interest rates are below 3%. I you know, can get a great deal on a mortgage right now. And that 
doesn't exactly translate into what banks are going to offer you. Good point. Excellent point. With that being said, um, I was doing a little bit of research last night in preparation for this interview, and I noticed, um, according to the South Bend Tribune, Elkhart County, um, their listings have dropped by over 4% for the month of May, um, but their selling prices have jumped by 8%. Marshall County listings dropped by 30%, while the prices rose by 2.5%. And I, I was thinking about that. It, it's strange that the amount of listings would would drop um, with the interest rate being so low, you, you'd figure that that would sort of um, make the market boom and that would that would increase inventory. But the inventory is still so low. Um, it, it's uh, do you feel it's it's lower or um, or as low as it was prior to covid? You know, I um, I definitely see that being the major hindrance with many um, buyers right now is the inventory selection. I mean, it is very low. Therefore, the market is very competitive. And I don't think that COVID helped. I think what happened was, is when COVID set in, many sellers did sit on the sidelines and wait to list their homes. And I think that many sellers are still on the sidelines and they may not be listing their home. Um, it could be due to COVID, but it's also due to the fact that um, there's it's a, a self-perpetuating issue when there's low inventory. Sometimes the mentality is, well, I could sell my home and I want to sell it, but I don't know if I could buy a new home. You know, so sometimes that mentality um, sets in. But I, but I will say, to maybe shift the the idea, uh, if you are a seller and you are wanting to purchase uh, a new home as a buyer, I think it's a really good time to sell because of the the inventory being so low. You're going to have a lot of um, offers, most likely, if it's in the right location and it's priced right. Um, as a buyer, I think, you know, getting off on maybe a tangent here, but as a buyer, if you are uh, concerned about it being ha having low inventory, one of the things you have to remember is that Yes, with low inventory, you're going to have higher demand. Therefore, the prices of homes will go up. So the average sales prices will go up. But with the lower interest rate environment, you're still looking to be favorably positioned with regard to the rates being as low as they are. So your buying power, your purchasing power is still pretty strong with regard to um, the interest rates being a part of that equation being so low. Yeah, I was wondering if with the interest rates being so low, that might tempt people to refinance in place as opposed to sell their house. But again, like you were saying, the the there's such a huge incentive right now to sell your home because it's it's such a seller's market um, to go and get your dream home now. This is the time to do it, right? Yeah, and you know, I've had some people who they um, they actually listed their home before they found a new home. And they did find temporary housing for a period of time. And I'm actually working with a past client of mine who sold already. And um, they were okay with having temporary housing and then finding a home and taking their time to find a home. So sometimes that's not a bad strategy. I know that people don't like to move multiple times if they can help it, but that's not a bad strategy. Another option that some people have is, um, is trying to purchase their home, a new home, before they sell their other home. So look for homes before your home is listed, get it ready to sell. You can then move into the new home, then get your home that you moved out of um, listing ready, presentation ready. You know, you can stage it well. And if you can qualify for the, 
for the one home before the other one sells. That's another strategy. And, and there's ways of, of doing that too. That's interesting. I, I, I've never thought about having like a, a, so renting between your selling and your purchase. Um, I wish I would have thought of that two years ago when I did the exact same thing. I, I listed my house before I knew what I was going to buy. And then my house sold in five days. Um, and it, it took us uh, by quite a surprise. Um, speaking of the rental market, have you seen any shifts in the rental market post COVID or, or, or during COVID now? Um, as far as are, are there more renters? I, one thing I was wondering is are as we've talked about with interest rates, um, are renters converting to buyers at a higher rate? Well, I will say there is no shortage of, of um, buyers who are willing and wanting to purchase a new home. So I know there's no shortage of buyers that are hungry to buy homes. There's a ton of buyers out there. So I do know that. Um, that being said, a lot of the buyers that we work with are first-time home buyers. And so I do know there are uh, there and I don't know the statistics on it, but I do know that um, although rates are lower and um, and there are buyers that want to purchase, I do know that there has been a tightening of lending guidelines since COVID. So after COVID-19 hit, there um, were more people with job loss and you saw the historic unemployment numbers. I know some of it's temporary, but some of it has been it's going to be a permanent change i mean with regard to or at least a long-term change with regard to uh, the mentality of our society when it comes to the service industry restaurant industry the food service all that i mean the travel industry there's people that jobs aren't going to necessarily be the same and so that said there has been more um uncertainty with regard to you know uh, lenders lending money to people that might lose their job you know so it gets a little bit more nerve-wracking from the standpoint of the industry as a whole. And because of that, there was a slight tightening of guidelines for certain buyers with maybe marginal credit or less money down, or they're trying to do government financing. You know, there's certain things like that. That said, it has probably, I would say, pushed more people um, into the the uh, renting market, the rental, renter's market. But uh, I do know that there is a ton of opportunities still. So although I don't want to sound negative, like, oh boy, it's hard to qualify. It's not that hard to qualify. It's just that we have to slow down and make sure that the expectation is set correctly for our clients. And um, yeah, maybe they, some people can't qualify yet, but uh, we can get them to a point where they can qualify, uh, you know, maybe in the next six months or so. And hopefully if COVID starts to settle down, we never know. Nope. I have no idea. But if that happens, then um, we're going to start seeing some of the guidelines loosen back up for some people. The bank qualifications, uh, uh, the lending qualifications tightening up. Ha have you seen that across the board or have you seen that um, as far as, is it, is it, is it just the credit score there? They want a higher credit score or do they want more cash up front um, or do they want a longer employment um, or, or a higher salary? Is, is it one of those specific things that you've seen tighten up or is it everything? Good question. So the the biggest one would be FHA financing. And so many lenders could actually do FHA financing, you know, even at a 580 or a 600 credit score uh, pre-COVID. And then after it hit, 
and we saw the writing on the wall that there was way more uncertainty in the markets. The um, many lenders across the board went to um, what we call overlays, like additional requirements when it comes to FHA. So one overlay is some lenders are only allowing a 620 credit score, some a 640 credit score, some even a 660 credit score to do an FHA loan. Um, and so that's been an impact. So we're just in general, like the credit score itself has to be a little bit higher um, for some some lenders, for most lenders, I would say. And um, if it is lower, they're going to see higher interest rates on some of those. So that would be probably the first thing. The second thing that I've noticed is more so not so much like their income has to be higher um, or they have to necessarily have more money down. I mean, that really hasn't changed. We can still do loans as low as 3% down on a conventional loan, 3.5% down on an FHA. We still allow down payment assistance programs. Uh, VA financing is still available, USDA, which are no money down options. Um, so that's still around. But what I've noticed is heavy scrutiny on employment stability. That's probably the biggest thing. And so what lenders have been doing is just prior to closings, uh, you know, contacting the employer to confirm the person is still employed. There's not any major issues with employment. If you're self-employed, lenders have been doing verifications and re-verifications of their employment. As a matter of fact, um, lenders have to now go, this is a June, I believe it was June 10th, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac came out with guidelines. I said, hey, if you're self-employed, the lender can't just use your last two years of tax returns, which is what we historically did. We would just take like an average of the last couple of years. No, we're going to actually have to take those, but we're also going to look at their last couple business bank statements. We'll have to see your year to date profit and loss statement to see if anything related to COVID has impacted your employment, your income. And if there has been a material change in their income, their profit and loss, and you can see they have less deposits in the bank, then lenders could go so far as to say, you know, we can't even do the loan for you until you start to stabilize your your self-employment. And that just wasn't the case before. It was a little bit um, less important when it came to year to date. And it was more so looking at the history. So now lenders are just slowing down, doing more due diligence on that employment um, verification. Yeah, that is a big change, um, especially with the FHA guidelines, the credit score going up to 660. Um, I, I was always, I think it was always around 620 every time I looked into an FHA loan. Um, and there, I, I even ran into lenders that were lower than that. Yeah, and it can still be 620. I mean, you can still see some lenders 620, 640. But like I said, there are a handful that some of them won't even do FHA financing right now. And then um, some lenders are, um, you know, closer to 660. But we've seen lower than that, too. So it just depends on who the lender is. So that, that would be, if you're a buyer, you'd have to do your due diligence on what lender you're going to work with. So now you, you mentioned uh, the uh, USDA loan, and I, that's a very interesting loan uh, program that I was not aware of until I bought my house down in Lakeville, um, because it's to, to, if I understand it correctly, to qualify for a USDA loan, you have to be in a rural environment. And there's actually a map online that you look at and you, you plug your address into, and it'll show you if you're in these designated areas. Basically, if you live anywhere near a city or, or within city limits, you can't qualify for a USDA loan, but they're zero money down, which is extremely attractive, especially um, for the the buyer today who may be short on cash. Can you go into the USDA loan a little bit? I think I think for for our area, that's a particularly interesting loan because you know you take five steps out of South Bend and you're you're in USDA loan territory. 
Yeah, that's a good question. So USDA, interestingly, uh, in most of St. Joseph County, it's not that prevalent. Uh, but when you start going south and west, you start to see a little bit more uh, prevalence when it comes to USDA. So down in that uh, North Liberty, Walkerton area, if you're in the um, New Carlisle area, like you said, Lakeville area, if you're in Plymouth, you know, those areas in the around the Michiana area, that'll be good. If you're north of the state line, just outside of Niles, you're going to find USDA in Michigan being prevalent. And just real quick synopsis of it, it's no money down and it's based on income. So you can't make too much money. And uh, it, as you said, Stephen, it's based on the location of the property. And so if you are interested in a USDA loan, you would just need to get with the lender, have them plug the address into the eligibility map. And then just run the income uh, limits and make sure that you're good to go. There are certain credit requirements on, on USDA and some things that uh, you have to be mindful of. But that uh, is a really good, I would call that like a civilian VA loan. It's almost like the equivalent of a VA in the fact that it's no money down. And there's very low, uh, we call it guarantee fee, which is like mortgage insurance. It's cheaper on a USDA than, than most other loan types. And do you feel that the USDA loans, um, the, the requirements for, for those types of loans have changed much uh, during COVID? Um, you know, it's not so bad. I mean, I, we've noticed that, you know, generally speaking, if you're getting, a, if you're trying to get an approval through the automated system, they call that the GUS system. Um, it is generally speaking a 660 credit score. You can go a little bit lower, but then you, you may have to have it manually reviewed by USDA or by your underwriter, lender does. And so, uh, but, but not really a, uh, a major change. I mean, they haven't made any material shifts to their written guidelines or anything. With the VA loans, do, have, have those requirements changed at all for veterans? Um, no, I think the, um, actually for VA, we're still allowing uh, manually underwritten loans. Um, VA, uh, their, their system that we run, our findings, our automated findings through has, I don't think it's really tightened up too much on that. So no, I haven't seen any dramatic shifts. I still think that because it's a government loan though, um, you found that you, you'll find that some lenders are still requiring credit scores to be a little bit higher. I mean, if you go online and Google VA credit score requirements, they don't really have a particular credit score requirement, but most of the time you're going to find lenders are still wanting to see those scores in that 620, 640 range, 660 preferably, or, or even higher. And um, and you're going to have good interest rates on VA as well. So, I mean, that, that really hasn't changed either. So with manual underwriting, I, I remember when I got my first loan or when I, I was um, going through my first mortgage process, they uh, I had to go through manual underwriting. And I'm like, wait, what, what the heck is that? And, I, you know, what's what's the difference between automatic and manual underwriting? And, and I understand it now um, going through that whole process, but I wonder, I, I think there are a lot of people listening, especially first time home buyers. They, most of them are, are going to have no idea what, what manual versus automatic underwriting is. So if you wouldn't mind taking a couple of minutes to sort of unpack that a little bit. And, and then also um, a secondary question to that would be with these bank requirements tightening up, do you think that more particularly first time home buyers are going to be going through the manual underwriting process. 
Yeah, so um, the the difference between an automated underwriting approval and a manually underwritten loan is when now most lenders prefer an automated approval. And so what what lenders do is they actually have to run a borrower's income, credit, assets, all of their basically their loan application through an automated system, which is like a risk analysis that's being done on the file. So the initial pre-approval process from a, a loan officer standpoint is they'll take a loan application from a borrower. They'll plug in all the correct data. They need to make sure the data input is correct. And then they'll run it through that risk analysis. And generally speaking, the risk analysis will either give them a, a green light, which is an approval or a red light. And if you get a green light and it all looks good in the borrower's documentation with regard to their pay stubs, W-2s, bank statements, all of that supports the input data, then the lender should be able to issue a solid pre-approval. So then the borrower can start looking at homes with their real estate agent and then um, they'll feel more confident in their offer on a um, on a new home. And the seller will feel more confident seeing that it was actually a pre-approved borrower. Now, sometimes when a borrower gives all that information to their lender, the lender runs it through the risk analysis and the, the system just doesn't take it. It doesn't give you a green light. Basically, it gives you a yellow light, it says slow down, not necessarily a red light. Sometimes you'll get a red light where it's like, you can't do this. You can't even manually underwrite this one. But, um, but many times it'll be a yellow light. Then the lender has to slow down, uh, get their file sometimes looked at by an under, a human being, an actual underwriter, not the computer system, and take it to that next level and see if they can get it um, approved through a uh, manually underwritten process. Now, there are many loan types, though, that lenders just do not want to do a manually underwritten loan on. As an example, most lenders, I'd say a majority of lenders, don't like to manually underwrite conventional loans like a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan. Um, some lenders will manually underwrite government loans, though, VA, FHA, USDA. Um, and, and so it's a little bit more easy to get it approved when it's uh, one of those types of loans. And the reason why is because an FHA, VA, USDA loan, there's just by nature of those loan types, there's a little bit less restriction when it comes to credit scores. It's a little bit looser on the guidelines on credit score, income, things like that. And so uh, most of the time, if you have a marginal file, it will probably be a government loan and it may be allowed to be manually underwritten. Um, so that kind of helps. Uh, hopefully that helps explain what the uh, what that process looks like. Yeah, no, it, it does. Because a lot of people, um, I, like I said, I'm one of them who you know, when it comes back, it's like, oh, well, we have to, we have to send this through manual underwriting. And you just, you know, most of us have no idea what that, what that even means. So uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to start with you for the first episode for, for this podcast is you have to get your financing in order first before you can buy your, your dream home or your first home. You have to, it, you know, you can window shop all day, but you got to get the numbers in order first. So I think it makes sense to start with, with your expertise in this area. And so with that, for somebody in our market who is ready to buy a home, when they come to you, when they come to see you, what do they need to have ready to go? What, um, what's a good, I, I guess there's not a good threshold of cash because home prices differ, but um, what's a good percentage of cash to have on hand? Where should their credit score be and income and length of employment? And what do they need to have ready to go when they come see you? Good question. I think that's probably the best um, question that you could have for somebody and, and uh, because people need to know. So um, what you would need is 
basically when it comes to a loan, there's three, there's multiple things to look at, but there's the three main segments of a pre-approval on a loan file. So it's going to be a borrower's credit. It's going to be their employment and income, and it will be their assets or money available. And so the first thing you need to ask yourself as a borrower is, is my credit okay? Do I have um, stable employment? And do I have any money saved up or where is my money coming from? And you'd be surprised. There's a lot of people that don't realize that they call and they're like, well, I have no money in the bank. Or they call and they're like, well, I don't, I don't think I even have good credit. Or um, no, I've, I've changed jobs a lot. And so, you know, those are going to be some indicators on if a lender can approve your loan or not. And so if you have of those three area sections, if, if one of them is weak, but you have two of them that are strong, well, then maybe we're in pretty good shape. But if you have two that are weak, and then you have three that are weak, you're probably going to have to really get your ducks in a row a little bit better. But so when it comes to uh, employment or income, we a lender likes to see stability. And so you need to have at least a 24-month history of stable employment that can be documented. And that doesn't mean 24 months at the same job. That just means 24 months documentable income, whether it be W-2s, tax returns, things like that. And so we want to see that. So stability and employment is so vitally important, especially now. So that's something that's that's critical. Now, if you have college coursework, let's say you just graduated from college and you're going to be starting a new job, that's good. We can actually use your college um, degree and, and transcripts to show that you were studying and that can be used as employment history. So keep that in mind too. Um, so we'll look at that. Uh, we want to see your, your employment cover your your uh, future uh, pay excuse me your, your future of house payment and so that would be a we look at what's called a debt to income ratio and so we want your debt ratio normally a rule of thumb is a debt ratio of 30 percent roughly speaking but it can exceed this but 30 percent of your gross income could potentially be a house payment so as an example if you let's say have a salary of you know fifty thousand a year and your income then is $4,166 a month, we'll just take that, multiply it by 30%, and that would be a payment of around $1,250. So that would be just a real quick, just rough idea of maybe where your payment should be when it comes to your monthly budgeting. So look at that. That's going to help you determine maybe what price range you would be in. So employment and income. Number two is the assets. Generally speaking, you want it, a lender wants to see, you know, three to five percent down, and uh, see some reserves in the bank. One thing that I, if if you were, you know, my family or a friend of mine, and you're trying to buy a house and you're asking me for my advice, and I see that you have just enough money to buy a house, but that's it, you have no more money left over. You know, that's going to be concerning to me because I don't want you to buy a house and then you have no reserves left over in the bank. And now what happens if you move in and you have some expenses and inevitably you do when you're buying a new home. And so you just don't want to exhaust all your money. So I always tell people, try to put together a, a good two to three month reserve and then also save up some money for the down payment and cash to close uh, for the transaction. And uh, that'll be really helpful. That On that same note, um, you're, you have down payment you have closing costs, and then you have what's called prepaid expenses. So those are going to be the three sections of costs when a borrower is buying a home. And so, you know, I'm not going to quote numbers specifically, but I'll just say a rule of thumb, many lenders are going to find closing costs are between maybe two and $3,000 roughly. 
Sometimes there's options where there's no closing costs and things, but two or three thousand. And then you have what's called prepaid. So that would be taxes and insurance and everything. That could be another couple thousand bucks right there. And now you have that, and now you're adding that to your down payment, which could be three or five percent of the sales price. And then you can see it starts to add up a little bit. So you'll want to make sure that you count the costs, slow down, talk to the lender about your assets. And then the final thing would be your credit. And um, you can look at your credit. I mean, Credit Karma is not a bad uh, site to go to when it comes to just seeing your credit. I would not put any um, you know, trust in their credit scores that they give because that's not always accurate. But if you're just wanting to at least see your credit um, and see what the body of the credit report looks like, you can go to Credit Karma. But better yet would be uh, annualcreditreport.com. So if you go to annualcreditreport.com, that's a government endorsed site and a buyer can pull their credit for free uh, once per year from each bureau, TransUnion, Experian, and Equifax. And actually post-COVID, they're allowing you to look at your credit more than once a year for free and you can monitor your credit a little bit more on that site. So I would say that would be a really good starting point. Not Once again, you won't see your score, but you can at least see if their credit's accurate, see if there's any late payments, if there's any issues. And then I would say, you can speak with a lender or speak with a lender up front. We can walk through all that stuff, but um, that'll give you a good starting point if you're a borrower. No, that's great. I, I actually plan on doing an entire episode on, on credit scores because there's just so much to unpack there. And I mean, especially speaking of something that needs to be demystified um, there, there's, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about credit scores. And I agree with you that credit karma, it, it's a good sort of monitor. Um, you know, number one, it's free. So, so that's great. And, and it'll kind of give you an idea of, whether your score is going up or down, but no, it's not accurate for, for home buying or for getting a mortgage. Um, and I, you know, your, your advice about, um, the, what to expect with closing costs is, is huge. It's, it's a big miss that I don't think gets explained, especially to first time home buyers when they're getting ready to buy a house, they don't expect that, by the way, once this whole process comes to completion, you're going to have to cut a check for probably five grand, you know, depending on the cost of the house that, that you're going to have. So what, that rolls into my last question here, which is when you go online and you're looking at Zillow or, or any of these other, um, any of these other uh, places to, to look at homes, you're, you're going to get inundated with um, online mortgage banks, online mortgage officers that want to give you a loan. And I've been through that process. I've used one of those online companies and they, they don't prep you for some of the stuff that you were just talking about, especially with closing costs. And so I may be answering the question for you with this being a local show. Can you highlight a couple of things that are better with going with a, a local mortgage company as opposed to an online company? Yeah. Um, you know, I think sometimes in our generation, we have the perception and some online lenders do a really good job of marketing the perception that it should be very easy to get a loan and you just push button, get mortgage kind of thing. Right. And so I think that's a great marketing scheme and it's, it's, you know, some, I mean, it's, it works for a lot of online lenders and some of them do a good job, but the problem is, is that I think people, they lose the idea of, the educational part of it and they feel like they that it may be easy but they don't know what they got themselves into and, and getting into a mortgage buying real estate it's generally speaking the most important transaction that you'll ever have in your life and the largest investment that you'll ever have 
And so I think from a local standpoint, yes, we have the same technology that the online lenders do, where you can do an online application, you can use an app on your phone, you can e-sign documentation, but I would never discount the importance of slowing down and during COVID doing a video conference with your loan officer or meeting in their office. If you, you know, you wear a mask, meet in their office, you can do that. We do that. Um, but really slowing down and, and getting the education on the file and knowing what you're getting into, count the costs. Um, yes, you know, uh, it, it may be a little extra time invested, but you owe it to yourself. And I think if you're not working with a lender that's willing to educate and willing to slow down and uh, they're just selling ease of transaction, they're selling convenience, then I think you need to look for uh, somebody that's willing to give you as much convenience, but also um, be an advisor to you. And sometimes when you have an advisor in your life, they're going to tell you things that uh, maybe you you don't want to hear. Like, for instance, hey, let's slow down and take 30 minutes to really dig into the details when you're like, well, you know, I just just tell me where to sign. I think you need to have somebody that's going to slow it down and, and really make sure that you're educated. From our standpoint, how we see it is we're a part of the community. We know the taxes. We understand the how this all works around here. And um, we're, we're vested in the community. We want to be local, just like you are with this podcast. That's why I did that local podcast, because I want to connect with our community. And I think um, more than ever, we need to you know, support our community. And we feel that we're a part of it. We understand it. We support the families in the community. And, and uh, that's another reason why we, why we feel like um, a customer should stick with somebody that's local. They can see them face to face. They're not going to hide behind um, their phone and never get in, in touch with them if there's a, a problem that's happening. You know, you need somebody that you can address questions and concerns with too. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, uh, it's so important, especially with, like you said, with, with the type of purchases that we're dealing with here. It's it's so important to deal with somebody who, um, you know, will be there locally and, and is invested in the community. Um, so with that, Jonathan, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you, like I said, being the guinea pig here for the program. I think you you answered a lot of my questions and I and hopefully you you answered a lot of questions that people might have who are listening to this in the community that, you know, it's not all of us know a local loan officer who we could just call up and ask these random questions to. And so I, I think this is really valuable. Um, I really appreciate it. And uh, before we sign off here, if, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, putting out your contact info, letting people know um, where they can get a hold of you if they want to explore getting a uh, mortgage, um, how do people get in touch with you? Yeah, you're uh, you're welcome. And, and I also appreciate you taking the time and being a resource to the community. I think people need to realize that um, also real estate agents, uh, they're not all created equal. You know, you need to have somebody that is uh, has the heart of a teacher that's themselves educated and willing to connect and educate their clients as well. I think you do a good job of that. So I appreciate it. But um, yeah, for me, I um, I am in South Bend, but I work in all areas of Michiana, really. My um, main number to be reached on right now is really my cell phone or my office. My cell phone's 574-229-2029. Office is 574-968-6660. And then you can go to our website. If you want to like do an online application, you go to uh, mckinnisteam.com, M-C-K-I-N-N-I-E-S team dot com or you can find us on facebook um and we will be able to connect on that uh, platform as well 
but uh, yeah, we're, we're happy to serve and, and uh, hopefully this helps some, some of your listeners out as well. Jonathan, thank you so much. You're welcome. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. I thought Jonathan brought a lot of really good insight to the table and helping us better understand how banks are changing post-COVID. I'll include all of Jonathan's info that he said there at the end on the Facebook page for the show, which you can find at Facebook slash Pod. The Facebook page will also be the best place to interact with me. I'm pretty active there. You can also subscribe on just about any podcast platform, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you subscribe. Um, If you could leave me a rating or review, I'd really appreciate that. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at stephen.dejulius at gmail.com. And as I said, you can also look me up on Facebook. If you feel you'd be a good guest on the show, I'd be happy to talk to you. So shoot me an email or message me on Facebook. So until next time, see you guys later.